Yeah. Yo. 50 years of hip hop. 50 years of hip hop from listener power, KEXP. We're kicking it off with the year 1994. For many, the best year in the history of hip hop music. And I thought I'd touch on a personal favorite from that year underground classic Stress by Organized Confusion. One of the, if not the most underrated outfits of the 1990s, Organized Confusion are one of the preeminent cult favorite hip hop crews amongst the backpacker era elite, renowned properly as futuristic forerunners of style and flow. Straight out of Southside Queens, Prince Poe and Pharaoh Monch started out as the simply two positive MCs, promising understudies of the genius producer engineer Paul C., a revered innovator on the boards that helped push the sophistication of hip-hop records. Despite some label attention for their initial demos, the group remained unsigned, and Paul C.'s murder in 1989 would seem to derail their trajectory until the Disney-owned Hollywood Basic helmed by A&R and legendary hip-hop scribe Dave Funkenklein, scooped them up, releasing their stellar, self-produced 1991 debut album. Though the eponymous record was praised in the pages of The Source, and their song releasing Hypnotical Gases was quietly regarded amongst heads as mind-blowing, their label's promotion was minimal, and OK failed to make noise or garner much sales. By the time of their sophomore effort three years later, it felt like Prince and Pharaoh not only had something to prove, but that their very lives were on the line. The pair rapped like they were trying to dictate scripture from beyond while awaiting their last breaths in the gas chamber. The gases released this time around were far more caustic. I insert my lifeline into the track. The energy in me is a poison with no unrevealed remedy. I'm spreading like leprosy throughout the record label because mine's put me in my career in jeopardy. The title track to their 1994 opus, Stress, The Extinction Agenda, trains their focus on a killer of black folks that isn't gun violence or the police. Rather, the one felt in the heart and veins manifested in black people as shortened lifespans and hypertension at levels significantly higher than in any other group. Stress. The legacy of previous generations, something like 15 of them, impossibly traumatized at the hands of white supremacy socioeconomic terrorism, and the transatlantic slave trade. Now, I'm not even talking about the structural, institutional racism that are the bones of our society, what Biggie called the everyday struggle in 1994. I'm not talking about the environmental poisons that descendants of enslaved people disproportionately live amongst, or how the effects of enduring everyday racism promote inflammation, one of the main drivers of disease. I'm not even talking about the obscene maternal mortality rates of black women. I'm talking about those wounds of yesterday that literally live in our individual bodies and minds today. I'm talking about what Dr. Joy DeGry termed post-traumatic slave syndrome. I'm talking about how studies have shown how trauma can change DNA and how that trauma-born mutation can be passed down. Stress. All of which feels really appropriate to organize confusions ahead of their time status, 
since the very title of their 1994 album almost seems to thematically anticipate those more recent epigenetic findings, since it borrowed the name of one of my all-time favorite comic book crossover events, 1990's Extinction Agenda. In it, the X-Men and their related mutant teams found themselves at war with the fictional nation of Genosha, whose society had been built on the back of mutant slavery. Mutants were regularly kidnapped, mind-wiped, robbed of their identity, and employed as drones to serve the status quo. Has Storm ever encountered side effects of the Genjineers programming that she endured way back when? It was a proper apartheid-era update of the X-Men's original 1960s origins as a metaphor for oppressed minorities, as well as a perfect inspiration for the frustration and anxiety at the heart of organized sophomore album. On its title track, the pressure is relentless. The paranoid beat from producer Buckwild samples a sinister bass line from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. And screws down a torturous, scorching trumpet and sax cacophony from Charles Mingus's Mingus Fingus Number no. 2. The effect is akin to having a heart attack aboard a submarine that's taking depth charges. In the track's mostly monochromatic video, the pair is seen trudging through knee-deep snow, Prince Poe shirtless like hip-hop super soldiers on the Eastern Front. Pharaoh declares that you henceforth refer to him as the Apocalyptic One, as he chastises radio rap lemmings and brags of enjoying the taste of radioactive waste. The Marvel-inspired mixed media of the album cover couldn't be more apt. And there can be no discussion of the Extinction Agenda without talking about its iconic cover, featuring a hulking pharaoh and hammer-gripping Prince Poe depicted as superheroes wielding the power cosmic. A cosmos of stars and a constellation of faces glow within their bodies, energy crackling around their hands, Jack Kirby cast in Krylon. The pair stand atop an abstract island of cut-out mishmash evoking a heaving morass of stress and despair. Behind them, their south side hood is a cauldron of bubbling molten magma. In a visual era dominated by grim photorealistic iconography, this unforgettable image stands out as singular. It is the work of the prodigiously talented artist Matt Reed, better known as Matt Dew, a beloved Queen's original whose cult favorite work graced the covers of more than a few albums, singles, and magazines. It was around Christmas of 1998, four years after creating the perfect visual component to organize bleak lyrical adventurism. Matt Dew was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He was 28 years old. If Organized's second album did somewhat better than their eponymous debut, it also was swamped in a flood of critically lauded classics with big machines behind them. 1994, amongst other things, brought us debuts from the likes of Nas, Outkast, Biggie, whose album Ready to Die was a big-budget cinematic work of Bed-Stuy Scorsese. Nihilistic, sarcastic, and in case the title didn't tip you off, deeply depressed. When I die, I want to go to hell Cause I'm a piece of 
It ain't hard to tell. The album ended with a song called Suicidal Thoughts, a song that for me hit a little too deeply. As a listener who'd been dealing with some degree of suicidal ideation since, well, the late 80s, I've wondered a lot recently if depression runs in my family. And imagining my dad or my uncles struggling behind closed doors is a sobering, angering notion. Though I'm not sure who I'm mad at. Stress is whack. It was just a couple weeks ago that I was telling my therapist how I was feeling stressed about coming back to work after a few weeks off. After getting my yearly dose of holiday-related stress, guilt, and withdrawal. I didn't mention the guilt I feel even being able to take time off in the first place, though. I told her about how the last thing I worked on for Sound and Vision was about Black Death, and how, even though I worked really hard to get it right, there's parts in it that made me wonder if I was playing in the played-out narratives about Black life. Because I have to represent and get it right. As a Black person who often finds themselves in non-Black spaces, doesn't always feel like you get to be an individual. You're often conscious of somebody viewing you as an avatar for an entire people. And you do it to yourself, too. Running the piece back, there's a tiny turn of phrase that actually makes me wonder if I failed my people. I think about white colleagues from the past and present and wonder how often they feel anything like that. The phrase, how do you sleep at night, comes to mind, hilariously as I'm sleep-deprived, staying up way too late, struggling to articulate a million different things in a piece ostensibly about a 30-year-old rap song. Yeah, black folks apparently on the whole get less sleep than anybody in the U.S. for some reason, and it supposedly dates back to slavery. I told my shrink I was working on a piece about a song called Stress. And she groaned as I slightly spun out about how meta and literal I was being. Yeah, it's all just a little too on the nose. Maybe I need to, you know, go for a walk. Touch some grass, as the kids say. Relax before stress takes me under. It is indeed like a jungle sometimes, and sometimes your feet are the best exit strategy. Case in point, the mid-song execution of a racist cab driver on the album version of Stress. When I'm in the backseat of your midtown taxi, don't even ask me for the cash key. The four cabs before didn't pick me up. No, ask yourself who the f- gonna stick me up. It might seem an overreaction, and is. But as someone who frequently had to have his white bandmates hail cabs for him after shows, even here in progressive Seattle, not even 20 years ago, well, as Chris Rock once said, I understand. It's It's frustrating. Trivial on its own, but just one of those thousand, thousand cuts that drain you over the course of a life that I guess tends to be shorter and more stressed out than most. Is it just me or is it about race? In 1994, there was a skit on Michael Moore's short-lived show TV Nation, written by Chappelle Show alum Rusty Cundiff, where yellow cab after yellow cab passed right by the iconic character actor, Yafet Koto. I tried to get cabs in New York before. All my life, all my life, all my life, all my life. And uh, have you got any? Never, 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 never. Who stood on an NYC street corner, trying to hail them down. Instead, stopping about 50 feet up the block to pick up a white man who happened to be a convicted murderer who was also trying to hail the same cab. 
Did you did you see a big sign that said, uh, I need a cab, and, and, a, and a black guy standing next to it? 1999, the beloved Danny Glover, a face you'd think was pretty well known from starring in the blockbuster Lethal Weapon franchise, among other things, himself had to file a discrimination claim with the NYC City Taxi and Limousine Commission. I don't know. Maybe cabbies just hated him in Predator 2. During the production of the Stress album, Organized carried records and equipment onto bus, train, and taxi to get to Manhattan and back. Trying to catch a taxi was a frequent ordeal. We had money, Prince Poe said in a 2014 interview, but the money couldn't buy the trust of the cab driver to take us home. So it was like, we'll pay you up front. But it didn't matter. The racism was that thick in New York. This was, after all, the same year that President Bill Clinton signed into effect the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. The crime bill gave us terms like three strikes and would result in the choice moment of our then first lady warning of super predators, no conscience, no empathy, and how they must be brought to heel. That term was coined by Princeton academic John J. DeLulio Jr. in The Coming of the Super Predators, cover story in the conservative Weekly Standard. They place zero value on the lives of their victims, he wrote, whom they reflexively dehumanize as just so much worthless white trash. So super predators, then, from the start, are this thing that's coded as non-whites that literally prey on white people. Okay. Well, the man who drafted the Senate version of the 94 crime bill, then-Senator Joe Biden of the great state of Delaware, would a few years later say during a speech at an attorney general conference speech that unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, a portion will become the predators 15 years from now. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. We have no choice but to take them out of society. I know that the guy that is today, president, was in that instance speaking specifically about a segment of hardcore repeat offenders in the system, and not as some bad faith Facebook viral clips would have had it, speaking broadly about African Americans in general. But when I think about how many folks can't or won't tell the difference in the first place, when I think about how many people that he helped incarcerate and institutionalize, when I wonder how much all of these worries I'm talking about belong to my experience and not to some biopsychological viral load I inherited along with my big nose and curly hair, I wonder at the end of the day, what agenda does it serve? Thanks to Roddy Nickpour for audio production on this piece. I'm Larry Mizell Jr. We'll see you next time on 50 Years of Hip Hop from listener-powered KEXP, where the music matters.